Greetings to all the students I so look forward to seeing on Wednesday mornings at the beautiful Franciscan Renewal Center. Until things change, this will continue to be the way that we will greet one another, that is, online. This lecture is the fifth in the spring quarter series. There'll be eight in total. I don't know whether or not we'll see each other before the eighth installment is recorded, but if it becomes possible, I will certainly look forward to that opportunity. But before we begin today, returning in just a moment to Second Kings, let's pause for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we come together, I will invite you to find your way with me to Second Kings. We'll continue our journey through Second Kings, beginning in Second Kings chapter 11 in just a moment. Diane and I are doing well. Thankfully, we have opportunity, ample time, uh, to ride our bikes, to do some mountain biking, and even some hiking and some fishing as of late. So having noted this, it's much more difficult for our eldest daughters who are not only working in California, but also homebound in the process and trying to homeschool unexpectedly to of their three respective children and try to stay clear of the youngest, Charlie, a year of age, and June, nearly five, who don't understand the demands of the workplace that is now called home and the homeschooling that goes on and simply delight in the fact uh, that they have everyone around them and they want everyone to pay attention to them. So far so good. Everyone else is healthy and happy. Remember our youngest daughter, Rachie, is married to a doctor who is in his first year of residency at Johns Hopkins, and he's on the front lines, uh, an emergency room doctor, so he doesn't really trail the patients beyond the initial arrival at the hospital, but he's seen some grim things in Baltimore and uh, is worried about uh, his parents and course, Rachie's parents, we are of the requisite age, 60 and above. But we're healthy and happy and doing well. And I really enjoy this opportunity I have to continue these lectures, eight in number on a weekly basis. It keeps me engaged in the Word of God. Now, we come back to Second Kings. And what we control in the narrative of the kings of Israel is very simply stated in the fact that there are 19 kings in the northern kingdom, all of them evil, one more evil than the next, as we will come to see. And there are, at the same time, a line of 20 kings in the south, in the kingdom of Judah. Of those 20, 13 are as or more evil than any in the northern kingdom of Israel, but 
seven of them are good. And as good kings, they are able to carry through the line of the Messiah that began with the promise made to King David and will ultimately be revealed in the person of Jesus. In our last week's lecture, we met that charioteer who was quite the military tactician and a madman, Jehu. And he was commissioned by the prophet Elisha to wreak havoc on the kings of the north as a sort of weapon in the Lord's hand. And at the end of chapter 10 in 2 Kings, you'll remember that in verse 29, Jehu did not, even as king given a commission by the prophet Elisha, desist from the sins which Jeroboam, the first king of the northern 19, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. That is, when he established the cultic worship centers north and south in the northern kingdom of Israel by placing a golden calf that was to be worshipped in each location. The Lord did say to Jehu, though, in verse 30, Because you have done well what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit upon the throne of Israel after you. But, in truth, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart, since he did not desist from the sins which Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, and that is, he didn't destroy the worship centers associated with the golden calves. And one of them is in the north in a place called Dan, and we visit that site when we travel to Israel. And at the time, in verse 32 of chapter 10, the Lord began to dismember Israel piece by piece, the northern kingdom coming apart little by little. Hatzael from the north defeated the Israelites throughout their territory east of the Jordan and took all the lands of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Aror on the Wadi Arnon up through Gilead and Bashaan. And then the rest of the acts of Jehu with all that he did and all his valor are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In verse 36, the length of Jehu's reign over Israel was 28 years in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Meanwhile, the queen mother, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, Ahaziah was killed by Jehu, a drawn arrow on his bow flew and pierced him through his shoulder blades when she saw that her son was dead and realized an opportunity had presented herself in the southern kingdom. She began to kill off the whole royal family, all except one particular male named Joash, who was Ahaziah's son. He was spirited away in verse along with his nursemaid from the bedroom where the princes had been gathered and were about to be slain. And he, this son of Ahaziah, known as Joash, who would have been her grandson, was concealed from Athaliah, and so he did not die. For six years he remained hidden with her in the house 
of the Lord, that is, with his nursemaid, while Athaliah ruled as queen over the land. But in the seventh year, at age seven, the age of reason, effectively, Jehoiada, a priest, summoned the captains of the Carians and of the guards. He had them come to him in the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them. He exacted an oath from each of them in the house of the Lord in the shadow of the temple. And then, once the oath was professed, he showed them that there was a son of Ahaziah still alive, a young boy just seven years of age. And he gave them these orders. This is what you must do. A third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall guard the king's house. Another third shall be at the gate of Sa'ur, and a last third shall be at the gate behind the guards. And you shall guard the palace on all sides, while the two of your divisions who are going off duty that week shall keep guard over the house of the Lord for the king. In this way, you will surround the king, each with drawn weapons, and anyone who tries to approach the guard is to be killed. Stay with the king wherever he goes. Now remember, the king is a seven-year-old boy, and Jehida is a priest who will become his regent and educator, the person who will train him up in the way that he shall go. But he's compromised now and needs to be protected, and they swore an oath to do exactly that. The captains did, just as Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each took his troops, in verse 9, both those going on duty for the week and those going off, and they came to Jehoiada the priest, and he gave the captains King David's spears and quivers to remind them of the legacy of that great biblical personage. They were in, of course, the house of the Lord. And the guards with drawn weapons lined up from the southern to the northern limit of the enclosure, surrounding the altar and the temple on the king's behalf. Then Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown and the testimony upon him, proclaiming him as a testimony, the true king. They proclaimed him their king and anointed him, clapping their hands and shouting, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise made by the people, she, of course, is <coughs> the recognized queen at this point, she came before them in the house of the Lord. And when she saw the king standing by the column, as was the custom, and the captains and the trumpeteers near the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, Athaliah realized she had been had. She tore her garments and cried out, Treason! Treason! And then Jehoiada the priest instructed the captains in command of the force, escort her, with the guard detail, if anyone follows her, they will die by the sword. Because Jehoiada the priest had said earlier, she must not die in or near the house of the Lord. So they seized her. And when she reached the horse gate of the king's house, she was put to death. And then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king, Joash, and the people, by which they would be the Lord's people and another between the king and the people. Thereupon all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal, and they demolished it. They shattered its altars and images completely, and slew the priest of Baal before the altar. Jehoiada the priest appointed a detachment for the house of the Lord, and took the captain 
the Carians, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they led the young king down from the house of the Lord. They came through the guards' gate to the king's house, and Joash took his seat, again, just a lad of seven years of age, on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet now that Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the king's house. So Joash, in chapter 12, was seven years old when he became king. In the seventh year of Jehu, that is, who was serving as king in Israel of the north, Joash became king, and he reigned for forty more years in Jerusalem. Because he's a king of Judah, we know the name of his mother, the queen mother. Her name was Zebiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash, and you would well imagine this to be the case, did what was right in the Lord's sight as long as he lived, because Jehoiada the priest guided him through the high places, though the high places did not disappear. The people continued to sacrifice and to burn incense on the high places. But remember, at least they were doing that to honor God and not pagan deities like Baal. So, Joash, in verse 5, eventually said to the priests, All the funds for sacred purposes that are brought to the house of the Lord, that is, the census tax, personal redemption money, and all the funds that are freely brought to the house of the Lord, the priests may take for themselves, each from his own vendor. However, they must make whatever repairs on the temple may prove necessary. You may recall that in Matthew chapter 17, we have mention of the temple tax. So we're fast forwarding into the New Testament era. And I'll remind you of this particular story. Jesus and his disciples have returned to Capernaum in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax, which is what is mentioned in 2 Kings under the rule and reign of Joash, they approached Peter and said, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, Peter doesn't know if he does or not, but to avoid shame, he answers in the affirmative. Yes, of course he does. And he leaves it at that. Now, when he came into the house, before he had time to speak, Jesus pulled him aside and asked him a question. Simon, what is your opinion? From whom do the kings of the earth collect tolls or census tax? Do they collect it from their subjects or from foreigners? Well, he said, the taxes that you're speaking of are collected from foreigners. And Jesus said to him, so the subjects or the sons of the king effectively are exempt. And suddenly Peter's mind processes that information and he realizes that's right. Now Jesus knows that Peter understands, but he says that we may not offend them. I need you go down to the seashore, just outside his back door, drop in a hook, and take the first fish that comes out. Open its mouth, and you will find a coin worth twice the temple tax. Give that to them for me and for you. Even though Jesus is obviously, as the Son of God, exempt from paying the tax, that small coin that will be found in the mouth of a tilapia, a particular variety of tilapia that is native uh, to the Sea of Galilee, will be the exact amount 
that would have been required for both he and Peter. I always point out that these tilapia are mouth brooding fish. That is, once their eggs are fertilized and hatched, the little fry swim very close in proximity to the female. When there is a sense of danger, the female vacuums in the fry until the danger passes and then spits them out and they can continue to forage. Knowing this, fishermen often would examine the jowls effectively of these female fish when they were captured in a net to see if there might be a little treasure, a stone or a piece of pottery or perhaps even a coin for their delight. And of course, Jesus told Peter to go through something that he would have been familiar with and he found the coin requisite for paying the temple tax. So I come back then to 2 Kings chapter 12. This money that has been accumulated from the census tax and personal redemption money and funds that are freely bought, brought to the house of the Lord, the priests are to take for themselves, each from his own vendor. This is 2 Kings 12 verse 6. However, they must make whatever repairs on the temple that may prove necessary. Nevertheless, as late as the 23rd year of a 40-year reign of King Joash, even though this had been the policy, the priests had taken the money, but had not made the needed repairs on the temple. Accordingly, King Joash summoned the priest Jehoiada and the other priests, and he asked them, why do you not repair the temple? You must no longer take funds from your vendors, from those whom you have solicited these funds for the purpose of the temple's upkeep. But you need to now turn those funds over for the repairs. So the priests agreed that they would neither take funds from the people nor make the repairs on the temple. So Jehida, still in the company of Joash, then took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right as one entered the house of the Lord. The priests who kept the doors would put into it all the silver and gold that was brought to the house of the Lord. And when they noticed that there was a large amount of silver in the chest, the royal scribe would come up with the high priest and they would gather up and weigh all the silver that was in the house of the Lord. The amount thus realized they turned over to the workers assigned to the house of the Lord, and they in turn would pay it to the carpenters and builders working in the house of the Lord, to the masons and stone cutters, and for the purchase of the wood and hewn stone used in repairing the breaches, and for any other expenses that were necessary to repair the house of the Lord. In this way, none of the valuables brought to the house of the Lord were used there to make anything like silver basins, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any gold or silver article. Instead, they were given to the workers, and with them they repaired the house of the Lord. Moreover, no reckoning was asked of those who were provided with the funds to give to the workers because they held positions of trust. The funds from reparation offerings and from purification offerings, however, were not brought to the house of the Lord, they belong to the priest. Now again, why no need for an accounting of the funds? Well, you could see the repairs were taking place. There was evidence on the exterior of the temple that these workmen were doing their job. 
Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, the geopolitical world is shaken. Hatzael, the king of Aram, in modern-day Syria, came up and attacked Gaath. Gaath, Gath of the Philistines, is on the coastal plain along the Via Maris. When he had taken it, Hatzael resolved then to go on moving up into the central highlands, west to east, to attack Jerusalem. Joash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred offerings presented by his forebearers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, kings of Judah before him, as well as his own personal fortune, and all the gold there was in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and sent them to King Hatzael of Aram, who then turned away from Jerusalem. Threat avoided. He was paid off. He was given tribute so that he wouldn't press his army against Jerusalem. Now, 40 years transpire, and the rest of the acts of the good king Joash, with all that he did, are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Certain of his officials, at one point, did enter into a conspiracy, and they struck down Joash at Beth Milo. Their names are recorded here. They killed him, and Joash was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, and his son Amaziah succeeded him as king. Now remember that Joash is king in Judah for 40 years. Well, there are kings in succession in the northern kingdom during that same time period. So that's why in chapter 13 we read, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the first of the four who would follow in their father's wake, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he would rule for the next 17 years. Now, it makes perfect sense that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, verse 2. And he did not depart from following the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. The Lord at that time was angry with Israel, and for a long time gave them into the power of Hatzael, the king of Aram, remember, who had threatened Jerusalem, and also of Ben-Hadad, his son. It was then that Jehoaz entreated the Lord, who heard him. And since he saw the oppression to which the king of Aram had subjected Israel, the Lord gave Israel a savior. And the Israelites, freed from the power of Aram, dealt, dwelt in their own tents as they had formerly. Nevertheless, even with this respite, they did not desist from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, uh, but persisted in them. The Asherah, the female consort of Baal, remained even in the capital city of Samaria. No army was left to the king. He had 50 horses with 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers, but that was nothing. This army reduced in size because the king of Aram had destroyed them and trampled them like dust. He had attacked from the north. And after his reign, the acts of Jehoahaz, with all that he did, and his valor are recorded in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And he was buried and then succeeded by Joash as king. Now, this is a different Joash. This is, again, one of the sons of Jehu. So, in the 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah, 
a king named Joash, J-O-A-S-H, became king over Israel in Samaria and would rule for the next 16 years. So these two kings shared the same first name. Because he's a king in Israel, and he's from the north, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and did not desist from any of the sins Jeroboam the son of Nebat had caused Israel to commit, but persisted in them. Now we don't know much about him, except that he ruled in Samaria for 16 years, and then he rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne. Jeroboam will be the next in the line of the 19 evil kings of the north. Now that brings us back to Elisha. Elisha's been alive all of this time, and his life now is coming to an end. At this particular point in biblical history, when Elisha was suffering from the sickness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, obviously, before he died, went down to weep over him. My father, my father, he exclaimed, you are Israel's chariot and horses. That is, you, like your predecessor Elijah, will most certainly, if you pass, ride a fiery chariot like he did into heaven. Well, Elisha knows that his days are numbered. And so he says to Joash, take bow and arrow. And he did. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, rest your hand on the bow. And he rested his hand on it. And then Elisha placed his hands over the king's hand. And he said, open the window toward the east. And as he opened it, Elisha said, shoot an arrow. And he did. And as he did, the prophet cried out, an arrow of victory for the Lord. An arrow of victory over Aram. You will beat Aram at Afek and finish him. The geopolitical situation will be stabilized after you eliminate this character from the north. And then he said to the king of Israel, Take the arrows that you hold. And he did. And he said to the king of Israel, Now use them to beat the ground. Well, obediently he then took the handful of arrows and began to beat the ground once, twice, and then three times, but then he stopped. Now the man of God, Elisha, became angry with him when he stopped and said, you should have beat five or six times. That would have given you the confidence that you would have beaten Aram and finished him. Now you will defeat him only three times. And after saying that, Elisha died and was buried. Now at that time of year, Bands of Moabites used to raid the land. That would be in the springtime of the year. Moab, a nation to the east of the Jordan River that would press across the Jordan River and attack to raid the land and strip it of its bounty. Once, some people were burying a man when suddenly they saw such a raiding band of Moabites moving toward them. So they quickly cast the man, temporarily they thought, into the grave or the tomb of Elisha to hide him. And everyone went off. But when the man cast into the depths of that tomb came in contact with the bones of Elisha, he came back to life and got to his feet. Meanwhile, King Hatzael of Aram oppressed Israel as well all the days of Jehoahaz, who again is a king of the north. 
But the Lord was gracious with Israel and looked on them with compassion because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he had made. He was unwilling to destroy them or to cast them out from his presence, even up to now. So when King Hatzael of Aram died and his son Ben-Hadad succeeded him, Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took back from Ben-Hadad the cities Hatzael had taken in battle from his father. And three times, as the prophet had predicted, Joash beat him and thus recovered these key cities for Israel. So verses 14 to the end of the chapter are a remembrance of things that happened during the lifetime of Joash when Elisha was still alive and at the time that he passed. Because we saw in verse 12 the rest of the acts and all he did and his valor and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel and he rested with his ancestors. So this is a rewind, a memory of what he did while he was king. So we come then to chapter 14. In chapter 14, in the second year of Joash, remember who will reign for 16 years, who is Joaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for the next 29 years in Jerusalem. Now, since he's a king in Judah, the answer to the test at the end of the Bible class is, who is his queen? Well, his queen is his mother. And his mother's name was Jehoadain. She was from Jerusalem. And he, Amaziah, did what was right in the Lord's eyes. Though not quite like his father David. He did just as his father Joash had done, though the high places did not disappear, and the people continue to sacrifice and burn incense on them, but they were burning incense and making offering to the Lord. When Amaziah had the kingdom of Judah firmly in hand, he struck down the officials who struck down the king, his father. But their children he did not put to death, according to what was written in the law of Moses, something the Lord had commanded. That is, that parents shall never be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their parents. Only for one's own crimes shall a person be put to death. In addition, Amaziah struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Salt Valley. They were trying to control the trade route known as the Transjordanian trade route and deflect trade from coming through Israel. Well, he engaged and won a battle. He took Selah in battle and renamed it Jokthail, the name it has to this day. Feeling now full of himself and knowing that he's been successful on the field of battle, Amaziah sent messengers to Joash. Remember, we know he's passed in chapter 13, verse 12, but this is a memory of when he was alive. The son of Jehu, the king of Israel, with a message. He challenged him to a fight. Come, let us meet face to face. Now, Joash comes from military stock. Remember, the madman General Jehu was his father. And hearing the summons, Joash, the king of Israel, the son of Jehu, sent this reply to Amaziah, the king of Judah. A thistle of Lebanon 
once sent word to a cedar of Lebanon. And that thistle had the gall to say, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But as he said it, an animal of the forest of Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle underfoot. That's who you are to me. You're a thistle and I'm a majestic cedar in Lebanon. I get it. Verse 10. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart is lifted up with pride. Enjoy your glory, but stay home, man. Why bring misfortune and failure on yourself and on Judah with you? But Amaziah wouldn't listen. He wanted to engage Joash in combat to try to get back the nation of Israel and claim it for Judah. So Joash, the king of Israel, in verse 11, advanced, and he and Amaziah, the prince of Judah, met face to face at Beth Shemesh of Judah, and Judah was defeated by Israel, and everyone fled to their tents. They ran away. Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, was captured by Joash, the king of Israel, at Beth Shemesh. And when they came to Jerusalem, Joash tore down the wall of the city from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate. He took all the gold and silver and all the vessels found in the house of the Lord and all the treasuries of the king's house and hostages as well. And then he returned triumphantly back to headquarters in Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, what he did in his valor and how he made war against Amaziah are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. We know this. This is a flashback, if you will. Joash rested with his ancestors. He was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and his son Jeroboam succeeded him as king. Meanwhile, in verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the one who picked the fight, survived and uh, ruled for another 15 years. And in verse 18, the rest of the acts of Amaziah are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In fact, one memory was that when a conspiracy formed against him in Jerusalem, he had to flee for his life to a fortified city known as Lachish. But he was pursued to Lachish and was killed there. He was brought back on horses and was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Thereupon all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was just a lad of 16 years old, and made him king to succeed Amaziah, his father. It was Amaziah who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his ancestors. So in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he would rule for 41 years. Now again, we do the math. He was a king in the north, and so he did evil in the Lord's sight. He did not desist from any of the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. And let's move down to chapter 15, because in chapter 15, again, time markers help us course our way through the narrative. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, and remember, Jeroboam will rule uh, in Israel for 41 years, so 27 years into his reign, 
Azariah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, became king. Again, we mentioned earlier, he was 16 years old when he became king, and he would reign 52 years, a significant amount of time. His name, mother, and queen was Jechaliah, and he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done, though the high places he did not make disappear, and the people continued to sacrifice and burn incense on those high places. The Lord, for reasons unknown, afflicted the king, and he was a leper until the day he died, living in seclusion. He lived in a house apart, while Jotham, the king's son, was master of the palace and ruled the people of the land as a regent in the name of his father. And the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Azariah rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. And his son Jotham succeeded him as king. He had been a royal prince, a king in training, and was ready for the challenge. So in the 38th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. And now things begin to unravel in the northern kingdom. He'll reign in Samaria for only six months. Of course, in that six-month period, he will do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, Shalom, in verse 10, the son of Jabesh, plotted against him and struck him down at a place called Iblaim. He killed him, a palace coup, and reigned in his place. So in verse 13, Shalom, after a brief reign of Zechariah of just six months, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and he reigned just one month in Samaria. Because Menachem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah to Samaria and struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria. He killed him and reigned in his place. And as for the rest of the acts of Shalom, as brief as they were with the conspiracy he carried out, these are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Because at that time, Menachem attacked Tapua and all its inhabitants in the whole district as far as Tirzah because they did not let him in. He was evil and he attacked them. He even ripped open all the pregnant women. So finally, in the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menachem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel for the next 10 years. He, of course, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as long as he lived. In fact, during that reign, Baal, in verse 19, the king of Assyria came against the northern kingdom. Now, to get him to think otherwise, Pool gave Menachem a thousand talents of silver. Remember, a talent is a weighted measure of silver uh, mounting to about 75 pounds. So times 1,000, that amount of silver, uh, to help him in holding on to his kingdom. Menachem paid out silver on behalf of Israel, that is, for all the people of substance, by giving the king of Assyria 50 shekels of silver for each one. And so the king of Assyria, with tribute in hand, went home and did not stay in the land. And so the rest of the acts of Menachem and all that he did are recorded in the books, the chronicles of the kings of Israel, 
Menachem rested with his ancestors, and his son Pekahiah succeeded him as king. Well, the reign of Pekahiah, the king of Israel, evil from beginning to end. And then we finally come to the reign of Jotham of Judah in verse 32. That will take us to the end of chapter 15 and the end of the lecture. The second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, Jotham, a son of a king named as Uzziah, a king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, and he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father, the good king Uzziah, had done. Although the high places did not disappear, and the people continued to sacrifice and to burn incense on the high places, it was he who built the upper gate of the Lord's house. So the rest of the acts of Jotham, what he did, they're recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. It was at that time the Lord began to unleash Razin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his father, and his son Ahaz succeeded him as king. Now, again, it's difficult to keep all of these kings in our minds. We know all 19 in the north are evil, and yet there were two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, working among them to try and steer the course of salvation history, while 13 of the 20 of the kings of the south were as evil as any in the north, and yet seven were good, good enough to carry on the story of salvation. Next week, we'll enter the rule and reign of Ahaz. Ahaz rules during the time of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. And we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 7 and that dialogue that he has with Ahaz, so significant in the story that we associate with the Annunciation and birth of Jesus, the virgin who will be with child and will bear a son, who will evidence the fact that God is with us, Emmanuel, God is with us. So that's what we have to look forward to next week. The appearance of Elijah, Elisha, and then Isaiah in the narrative of the history of the kings. So let's keep that in mind. I've come to the end of the time allotted for me for this podcast lecture. I do miss you, but never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this lecture, and I do look forward to greeting you soon. But for now, that's all your teacher has time to do. Good day, and God bless.